Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm your host for today, Will Button, and we have our new panelists with us. We have Jonathan Hall. Hello, hello. And Jillian Rowe. Hello, everybody. And then we've got our guest today. We have E.R. Zilberman. How are you doing, E.R.? Hi. Nice to meet you all and excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. You want to give us a little introduction about yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Iyal, and I am leading the product at a company named Atree. In Atree, we're helping companies prevent Kubernetes misconfigurations. And fun fact, you actually hosted my co-founder at episode number 76. So I give a reference to this episode, and I won't go into details about exactly how we're doing that because it's plain it's in there. And beside leading the product at the tree, I'm also leading the local community of GitHub in Tel Aviv, which is the biggest one in the world, over 2,500 users. And beside that, I just love development. I actually was a developer before I went into the tree and as a um, product leader. And another fun fact, I actually have a law degree. So I have nothing to do with development. It's all self-learned. And I actually love, really, I, lo- I really love code. And this is how I got into this uh, space. So you said you have a law degree? Yeah, this is correct. I actually have a law degree. And I was supposed to be a lawyer. And so the prospect of being a lawyer was so horrible, you decided, no, I'm going to work in tech instead. Is that how this went? <laughs> Something like that. Basically, like while I dealt with law, I, I always loved the technology. So I did like law and technology stuff. Basically, it was a lot of open source licensing because law people nev- never really understood what is a open source. And open source people never understood what is law. So I was in the middle there, was able to talk with both sides. But during this process, I actually fell in love with the technology and I decided it's this part of the open source. It's much more interesting. So I got into the open source, started developing by myself, and then went into the process of being a developer. So I have a law degree. It's somewhere um, on the wall. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not using it. So, so it's awesome. not that you thought law was too simple and you wanted a better challenge and you wanted something more complicated like Kubernetes to work with? That wasn't the thought process? <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Get out of your comfort zone. Are you like certified in law? Can you send out kind of cease and desist letters? Because I think that would really come in handy sometimes. I prefer not to do that because, again, I, I did it like a few years ago. So 
I'm not up to date with all the new rules and stuff like that. Wow. But you're up to date with Kubernetes, right? This is this is correct. Yeah. What's the latest new feature you're excited about? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't yeah, here's that stuff that show we promise not. To <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Too many for me to mention. Cool. But you did write an article that we've got here on why you need to use Kubernetes schema validation tools, and you actually looked at two different ways of doing that. Cubeval and Cube Conform. What was the motivation behind it? I'm assuming that there's like a, a backstory here of where something happened and you were like, oh my God, we cannot go through this again. <laughs> yeah. So actually, there's also a third option. It's like actually doing it with Cube Cattle. And so the backstory is that at the tree, like I said, we are helping companies prevent Kubernetes misconfigurations. We're doing that by scanning the manifest files and giving them indication if it's up to the standards that was defined by the organization, or policies, uh, also called. And some feedback that we got is that a lot of people told, told us that it's passing the policy, but it's still not a valid Kubernetes file. How come? Because, I don't know, someone forgot to configure it correctly, and instead of calling it, I know, API version, with version in a capital letter, it's all small letters, something like that. So it's still passing the policy, it's because it can have like a readiness probe and it can have a proper label and everything's correct. But on the technical side, it's not a valid Kubernetes file. And then we had the question, is this something that we need to catch or we don't need to catch? Because again, it's passing the policy. It's only a problem on the valid on the Kubernetes validation side. So I got into this space and I started to investigate. And while doing the research, I found that it's actually a common problem that people have. And there's only three ways to solve it. So one of them is with Cubeval, which is a really good tool. It's actually the most popular one that most of the people are using. And this is a way to do the validation offline. The second tool that I found was KubeConform. It's another open source. It's a really good, good tool. And by the way, I just want to say, Jan, I really love this tool. So <laughs> thank you for that. Jan is the, actually the, the person that write this tool. And Jan, he actually took Cubeval and he improved it. He did a lot of great stuff that you can see on Cubeval, and it's also well-maintained because Jan is keep maintaining this project. And then there is also the third option, which is actually using Cubecattle. But the funny part, and I was really surprised about that, is that in opposed to all the other stuff in Kubernetes that are really well-documented, this part of doing schema validation with the native tool, which is Cubecattle, it's not documented at all. I actually went through the code itself, like the core code inside GitHub to understand what is happening, to understand how it's working, which flag I need to use. And I looked everywhere, like I Google. When I Google it, I got like two pages. This is how weird it was. <laughs> Fell into a dark corner of the internet there, didn't you? Yeah, like someone can hide yeah. a body and the results about how to do schema validation with cubecattle. You can hide the body there and the results, no one will find it. Nobody will find it. Except That's some crazy. random no one is looking at it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be your new title. I was just wondering, as you were describing these, are any of these integrated with Helm? Or are these if you're writing your Kubernetes configuration files manually or through some other tool besides Helm? That's a, really good, that's a really good question. So if you think about it, Helm, basically, it's also a Kubernetes manifest. And in the end, we're also rendering a Kubernetes manifest. So it doesn't matter. Like All of them will work with, with the Helm. It's only a matter of do we have like a native integration that it will be connected to Helm directly, 
or the, another way to do that is to render the, the manifest uh, with Helm and then passing it to one of those tools. Yeah, it's an interesting way of doing it. Just yeah, just have Helm render it for you and then throw it off to one of the exactly tools like people and... forget people yeah, forget you that, that you, right? <laughs> exactly that Helm is actually in the end there's a Kubernetes manifest that's generating and this is what's getting pushed to your cluster. Usually you don't, don't see it because it's, it's pushing it directly, but if you do Helm template, you will see the file itself that is pushing. Cool. Now I have an extra step in my make files to add. I'm going to get right on that. I think that's a great that's a great point though. Is where do you recommend people do the validation checking at? Yeah. So just um, for the people that listening and didn't read the, read the article, we just say that good news. If you have a schema validation error, it will get caught in the end because basically when you try to deploy to your Kubernetes cluster, Kubernetes will throw an error. It will tell you that it's an invalid uh, Kubernetes file. That's all good. The problem is that you want to catch those errors as soon as possible. You want to shift them left. You don't want to wait until you try to deploy it. You want to catch them when someone is submitting them. And that's the problem. Because with kubectl, there is something that is called like, it's a dry run flag that you can say something, 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 apply minus dry run. And then it will connect to your cluster. It will check if it's a valid file. If it's a valid file, it will not apply it. This is why you have the dry run flag. And, but you have to give it the indication if it will be accepted or not by the cluster itself. So that's really cool. The issue with that is that you actually need to have up and running cluster and you also need to have a connection to that. So going back one step and we said that you need to validate those manifest files as soon as possible. Usually local machines or CI machines don't have and you don't want them to have a connection to your cluster. So that's become an issue. So you need to find a way that you can do it offline. When I'm saying offline, I mean with no connection connection to your cluster, but also in a way that you can run as soon as possible and not only when you want to push it into production or into staging or also to your cluster, which means to the cluster. So like I said, you, you have Qbival that you can do that with. You can write, run it locally. You can add it as a step in your CI and you can also do it in, in the CD before you're trying to apply something. So that's one option. Another option that you can do it with is with kubeconform. And same, same, you can implement it in the same ways because, like I said, basically it's almost the same tool. It's only, I would say, it's like kubeval with superpowers with kubeconform. And the other way to, for you to do it is actually with the tree. So with the tree, we, like I said, it was an issue that we had. So we also added those capabilities to our tool. And if you are checking for policies, there's also prerequisites that we will check. So we will check that you have a valid Kubernetes file. And if it's a valid Kubernetes file, it's, it will also check to make sure that's, that it's also passing the policy that you defined on, uh, on your organization. So this is also something that you can do. I will also say that another thing that is interesting, and I wrote in the article, is that you have another flag with kubectl. So you have two modes. You have server mode and you have client mode. Basically, you can check both of them requiring you to have a connection to a cluster. Something interesting that I discovered was that actually there's an open bug in the Kubernetes project. And the open bug is saying, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, among those 1,000 bugs that are open there. And this open bug is actually saying that this is not the expected results. If you're using the flag dry run, but on the, but as a client mode, it should not need to have a connection to your cluster. But right now it's not working. 
So it's still requiring you to have a connection to your cluster. Another interesting thing, and this is also I, I explained in the article, is that there is a discrepancy between the validations that are done on the client side and the validations that are done on the server side if you're using kubectl. So to answer your you question... On Go ahead, go ahead, and then I'll argue with you. That's fine. So just to wrap it up, the best way to do that is as soon as possible. You should run those validations across the entire process from your local environment through CI, CD, and just before you're going to deploy it or any other automation process that you have, staging, production, whatever, do it as soon as possible and do it all the time. I actually wanted to uh, argue with you a little bit on a point about not having access to a cluster while you're doing these validations. I would think you would need access to a cluster because what if I'm doing like node affinities or, okay, that's the only case that I can think of actually is when I have node affinities. So I don't, I don't have a real strong case to argue with you. But if I'm doing that, right, I would want for it to say, oh, you're setting this node affinity on something that doesn't even exist or doesn't make sense or it's not going to come up or I don't know, something like that. I would hope it would be smart enough to tell me that you're doing something wrong. And it would need to have a connection to your cluster to do that, right? So think about it like in big organizations that you have a lot of developers. And so usually we are saying CI, but we need to remember that CI CD are two different steps. And there are a lot of organizations that I'm familiar with that the CI step is taking X amount of time and only then coming the CD step. So during the CI step that people keep changing their manifest, it's not necessarily going to be deployed right away. So in, at this step, then when you have the CI process, you want to run different checks, and but you also don't want it to have a connection to your cluster. Only when on the CD step, you want to have a connection. You have to have a connection to your cluster. Mm-hmm. So if you separate those steps, which usually happening in big organizations, the CI step don't have connection to your cluster. So I'm, I'm looking through your, your article and, and some of the, you have this nice little table that compares Kubevel and Kubeconform against client mode and server mode of Kubectl and uh, what, what things were it caught and what it didn't. And I'm, I'm clicking on some of these here. And it looks to me like in some of these cases, it's looking more for syntactic validity than, than contextual validity. I don't know if that's the right phraseology there. But uh, for, for example, I look at the label value and it, the wrong example has a label of dash, 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 which is just, it's invalid. It's invalid syntax. It's not that it, that label, I guess my question here is, does this check that the label makes sense or just that it's syntactically valid? So that's a good question. So basically, there are different steps of validations that you need to pass if you want to have a valid file. So first of all, let's think about it like on the general view. You want to make sure that all the your all your Kubernetes files have to be a valid YAML file. That's first of all. After that, they have to be a valid Kubernetes file, which means they need to follow a specific structure. After that, the values inside those files need to be valid. And different steps or different tools will catch different errors that I just mentioned. So with the tree, we'll catch all the errors. We'll make sure that it's a valid YAML file. We'll make sure that it's a valid Kubernetes file. We'll also make sure that values are valid. And with Kubeval, it will make sure that it's only a valid Kubernetes structure. So you have different validations that will make. But by the way, kubectl, once you try to deploy it to your cluster, it will make it will check all the stuff that I mentioned. So it will also make sure that it's IAML file. It will also make sure that it's Kubernetes file and also a valid value. But again, the problem is that it's too late in the process because it's only when you want to deploy and you just want to ship all this information to the left, to the yeah. right. 
right? So, left, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of those. To the left, to the left, to the left. Do you, do you ship right? left in Hebrew also, or do you ship right since you read the other direction? We, we read the opposite. That's the problem, you know? This is why the confusion. <laughs> we're, we're, reading from, we're reading from right to left. So I'm like, it makes no sense. <laughs> did the Japanese shift up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Cultural adventures and DevOps. I had a great question and now I completely lost it. You want to shift back, by the way. It'll come back. The term is shift back. I I do remember that. I think, okay, well, I was just thinking, you know, like this whole idea of, okay, we can say that it's a valid YAML file and a valid Kubernetes file, but does it make sense? And to me, that's always been like such an interesting problem, like one of the more interesting problems, especially because my background is high-performance computing. So anyways, I think that we should have like a crossover event with the machine learning people where we just make them train a really big model on a whole bunch of Kubernetes configurations where it makes sense or not. That might be the only way to do it is have like a massive decision tree that nobody actually understands that says yes or no. <laughs> I think you just described Kubernetes. Exactly. <laughs> massive decision I mean, tree that nobody understands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Okay, I remember my question. I'm curious, what does your workflow look like when you're working on Kubernetes manifests. Do you run these tools in your editor, for example, on save? Do you use Git hooks? Do you use CI pipelines? What does your setup look like? How do you do this in practice? Well, I'm biased. I'm using our own tool. But yeah, but I'm telling so what I usually see that people are doing, this is why we created this tool, is that they understand it, the value and they're trying to ship it left. It's not right. You're trying to shift it left. And they are doing it with pre-commit hooks. That's one. Then it's implementing inside the CI. The problem is that you need to implement a lot of tooling in order to get those simple validations that I just described. So you need to have a linter for your YAML file. You have uh, to have kubeval or kubeconform for Kubernetes. And then you need to have um, some, some way to actually do the policy checks, which can be performed with different tools that are able to parse structure files, JQ, for example, just uh, throwing some uh, ideas if someone wants to get crazy and do it by himself. So it's actually requiring a lot of gluing and a lot of teaching and a lot of different tools that need to work together, which become to be like a, a massive headache if you want to do that. And this is why we built the tree, We're trying to do it in one tool, make it simple, make it fun. So you can, it's a CLI tool, so you actually enforce it or you can put it everywhere you want. You can put it on your local environment. You can put it in your CI. You can put it in your CD. You can put it everywhere. And it will do all those validations for you out of the box in a really simple and easy way. That's very cool. And is it all open source? Yes, yes. And yeah, again, cool. like, Even yeah, so there, there is a magic sauce in the tree. Like, it's not, we don't have a secret API. We are not doing something that, like, every developer can do what we are doing. It's, and we are totally okay with that. And the, the cool part is that we're just trying to make it much more simple for you. So you don't need to do it by yourself. So you don't need to configure this pre-commit tool and you don't need to configure this M integration. By the way, we also have a hand plugin so you can do it natively. We just want to make sure that it's simple enough for you to use our tool and not to try to build it by yourself. Because we all really believe in buy versus build that you should be focused on building great stuff that are part of your core business and not try to build and not try to build stuff that are not, and you should prefer to buy them. So this is how we think about it, and this is why we're, all, we're always trying to make sure that, we will, well, we always want to make sure that all the stuff that we're doing will give you a value as a user. 
That's very cool. You said something I didn't quite catch. There's a plugin for something. Was it Helm or was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you asked oh, about okay. them. Oh, nice. <laughs> so, so I mentioned because you asked about them. So for example, we have a native M plugin. So when you're doing M install, it will do all those validations. It will check sure, to make sure that it's a valid YAML file, to make sure that it's a Kubernetes file, to make sure that it's passing the policy, and it's all being integrated inside HAM. So you don't need to do the HAM template, pipe it into kubectl, run it with dry run flag or with kubeval or whatever, and stuff like that. Cool. Does it integrate with like any of the code editors too? Like, will it tell me in nice big red letters? Because like, listen, I really need those nice big red letters telling me that I'm doing something stupid. If not, it's on the roadmap. It's totally on the roadmap because we truly believe that you need to give this feedback about the validation as soon as possible. And on the roadmap is to also put it inside your IDE. And if it's possible, also in when you think about doing a misconfiguration, it will also be integrated there inside your head. <laughs> you get like a buzz cool. like ah! <laughs> what do you call that crd <laughs> not sure not sure we need to think about the name for that <laughs> so I'm, I'm really curious about how this works with helm because obviously helm isn't purely de deterministic in the sense that depending on what values values you provide you could have an infinite possibility of of actual kubernetes manifests that come out how do you handle that i mean for, for example, I'm, I'm thinking of the chart testing or CT tool. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it, it lets you define like a list of, you could give it a directory full of values YAML files, and it will just test against each one of those. Do you have something similar or how, how do you approach that? So again, this is a really good question, but we need to remember in the end of every Helm file, there is a Kubernetes file. So we are not checking the value file separately and the chart file separately. What we are doing is that we are rendering it together, and then we're running the checks on top of it. So in the end, it's just a manifest file that is rendered from hand value and then child that is combined together. So it doesn't really matter how you do, how you do the templating from your side. You can use which key and values that you want because in the end, it will be translated into a Kubernetes file. So we're just running it on the end result, which is the Kubernetes file itself. But but if my value, suppose I have one values file that says ingress true and one that says ingress false, that could output completely different manifests, you know, with completely different resources defined. And I might want to validate both versions. Does your Helm plugin automate that for me? Or do I just need to have two two lines in my CI script that says run it this way and also run it that way? So, make sense? <laughs> so if I understand correctly, you're asking if I can run it in if I can have like two different policies because I have different permutations for the same Helm file? Yeah. I mean, so suppose I have a Helm chart that, that just deploys uh, WordPress or whatever. And in, in one variation, one of my configurations, say, disables the ingress. So I'm no longer creating the ingress resource in my, in my output. I'm not setting you know, several different things that might not be created. I'm not creating an SSL certificate and so on. My output manifest is going to be significantly smaller with fewer resources in it than if I had enabled ingress. Uh, and maybe I want to validate both versions of that using your tool. What 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 steps do I take to accomplish that? Yeah, so basically, again, we, it doesn't matter. Like, we will validate both versions. So there is a logic inside your code that will trigger one of them, correct? Okay. Yeah. So the... Version that is triggered, this is also what will be passed to the tree, and this is what will also be validated and will give you the indication of it's passing or failing. The same that the same the same mechanism that's triggering triggering your Helm is the same one that will be passed to the tree. Yeah, so the validate runs on the like Helm install or Helm upgrade command, right? Exactly, um, exactly. Um, not beforehand. Then how are you going to integrate Ex it with an editor? 
with the editor. Yeah, because if it's in an editor, it's before the Helm install. You're right. And this is a challenge. This is something that we need to solve. I don't have all the answers right now. <laughs> this is something that we're working on. That's interesting. That's where you need a decision tree. <laughs> Probably. This is why we call the tree. <laughs> <laughs> Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software. And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. Well, I've been seeing people have validating their values file also with an additional JSON schema. And it seems like you could kind of work something like that out to sort of then have these trees that are like, oh, if you have a Boolean value, it should, you know, it should check for both the true and the false and these kind of things. But um. I don't know. I'm glad you're building it and not me. That's very cool. <laughs> so you're right. I also saw it. You can do it with JSON schema. As, sorry, you can do it with uh, JSON schema. The problem is it's taking it's do, it's a lot of work to do that, and it's also actually it's taking a lot of maintaining to make sure that it's always up to date, which is mm-hmm. more hard than just creating it. But it's not that common that people. This is the best practice, but it's not that common that people are doing it that. And usually they like just doing the validation itself and not on the values separately or on, or, or on the charts separately. They're doing the validation on what's coming out from combining the both. That's true. I tend to just cross my fingers and pray on all, all the times that I get, commit to GitHub. Yeah. So I think one of the things that was cool in your article here, because I know in my experience, a lot of pushback I've experienced in trying to implement different solutions like this is how much time it takes or how much you know, people don't want to do it because they they have this this idea that it's going to slow them down. But you actually did quite a bit of benchmarking on this, right? To see exactly what the slowdown or impact would be. Yeah. So this is something that it was interesting to me to see because while I checked the different uh, possibilities about how can I have how can I actually have overcome the problem of um, schema validation, I, I noticed that when I'm doing it with kubectl. And I'm doing it with the server mode, actually taking a lot of time to get the results back. So I said, hmm, what would happen if I would do it like one other times? <laughs> you know, like developers, you need to take it to the edge. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I actually benchmarked all, benchmarked all the tools and how much time it would take them to do the validation. It was, so just to give you uh, the summary of that, kubeconform is doing it the best way. It's actually giving the results really, really fast. After that, you have kubeval that's also giving the result fast. Again, it's like on milliseconds for a regular usage, not when you're trying to scan one of the Kubernetes files. So you, as a user, you won't actually notice that. So it's, you can say that it's almost the same. When you are running it with kubectl on the server side, on the server mode, so yes, it's taking longer, but it's not like it's going to take you 10 minutes. It's just going to take a little bit longer. So if we think about it, we just said that kubectl server, server mode it's the best validation. And so we don't really have an excuse why not to do that because it's not going to add too much time to your 
and deployment process or something like that. The only issue with uh, doing it is that it's requiring you to have a connection to a cluster. And as we already mentioned, this is something that is not, not always possible if you want to go as soon as possible with the shift left approach and you want to do the validation on the CI or on lo- uh, locally. Right. Would, would it be possible to run the server mode test against a test server, like say running in Kind or Minikube or something like that? Or does it really need to be your production server with all your existing CRDs and everything installed? Yeah, perfect question. So you can do it with uh, Minikube and then you can do it also in the CI or whatever, but then you need to remember it's have to have the same environment like your production. So if you have a namespace that exists on production but don't exist on Minikube, it will fail because you try to deploy a file, it will tell you, oh, I don't know this namespace, which is called Jonathan or whatever, because you have it on production. So it's a valid file, but it will fail your, uh, your failure. It will fail on the CI. So this is something that you can do. You can actually have a Minikube set it up like your production. But again, but again, it's like with the checking your, it's like building schema validation. Sorry, it's like building the JSON schema um, problem. You need to maintain it. You need to build it. It's a lot of headache. Yeah, I think we could argue forever about like mocking out infrastructure versus actually building it. For me, that's one of those pendulums that swung back and forth. And now I'm on the other side where I'm like, no, people are going to pay for me to have like the same setup in CI as in production so that I just have something real that I can test against because it's just, you know, too many times running up against this kind of thing that the uh, the CI infrastructure ends up not being the same no matter how long you take to make it. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge effort by itself just to sync everything, like to sync this is something that is going to be lost somewhere and someone's going to forget about it. And then it's going to annoy a developer really, 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 because you don't know why he's getting this validation error. Because it's like, <laughs> uh, right. I don't know what to do with that. Like, <laughs> and then there was a DevOps guy that forgot to actually uh, sync the Minikube with that. You know, it's going to fall in between the cracks somewhere for sure. I'm sold. I'm going to start using this tool. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Do you have a GitHub Actions for it? Can I just hook that up right now? Um, <laughs> so actually, so I have an example. In the docs, we have an example about uh, how to implement it inside a GitHub Action workflow. We still don't mm-hmm. have a GitHub Action per se. It's something that we will build soon. It just the amount of integrations that we need to build, it just enormous. I know, so, it grows and grows. Yeah, yeah. So we need to have like a SQL CIO and you need to have a IDE integration and you need to have a hand plugin. So it's something that we'll keep working on. And by the way, we also have like an open issue on that in our uh, GitHub repository. So if someone wants to suggest another integration, feel free because this is something that we always keep uh, updating. For example, someone said like, hey, we need you need to have a homebrew. You need to be installed with homebrew, not with a one-liner. So... We are listening to the community, and the cool part is that actually there's a, a company behind this open source. So there are people that are working on that full time. So every every issue that is opened is also issue that we address, and every bug that someone is opening is is, is a bug that someone is trying to to fix or to resolve. It's not like with Kubernetes that you have one thousand bugs and no one actually try to understand if they are valid bugs or not. What's the That's business very model? Cool. Yeah, it is cool. What's the business model this company is is employing? Is there a, is there a commercial version of this software available, or do they sell other commercial products? How does this fit into that ecosystem? Yeah, so like I mentioned, I started as a developer, and when we thought about this solution, we want we, we had one agenda, and it's to make sure the developers will enjoy using this tool, 
and it would be useful also without paying for it. Because like I said, you can always build it by yourself. So our goal is not to convert a single developer or a small team of 10 developers. Our goal is to convert or to monetize big organizations that appreciate what they're doing and getting the value. So we have like enterprise-grade features that are more relevant for those kind of requirements, you know, like SSO, custom support, stuff like that. But for regular usage of the tool, you won't mind that. And we don't have, for example, we don't have feature gating. You're getting all the features that we have and you don't need to pay for that. So the business model is basically based on the fact that some features that are not relevant to any other people are gated, which are, like I mentioned, SSO and stuff that uh, custom support, stuff like that. But we also have the limit of policy checks that you can run, which is today 1,000 every month. And it's almost impossible to pass it. <laughs> also, if also for... Uh, things like that on this kind of show. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. So I give you... What, okay. So we set the number for 1,000. Because we know that people should not pass it. Not because you can't. You can't pass it, right? <laughs> but on a regular basis, if you want to use the tool and get the value, there's no reason for you to do so many validation if you are not a huge enterprise organization, basically. Yeah, you say that. I hit the Docker pull limit a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't figure out what was happening. I was like, this image, this pull it. And no, no. Okay. I didn't even know they had a pull limit. Yeah, they just they yeah, used it in like it's, November it's or something. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty easy and to hit. Fun, funny story about that. So they're also doing some checks to make sure that you're not DDoSing, that you're not doing a, a DDoS attack on them. So let me give you a story about, you know what, I give you the name of the company because they're actually talking about it by myself. So there's a company called Datadog. I, know, I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah. And Datadog, yeah. So they have a, a configuration of the Kubernetes. And part of the, Kubernetes, part of the um, configuration was that you always need, you had, you always need to pull a new image when the application is going up, when it's deployed, right? Um, image pull policy, which means mm -hmm. that you need to always pull it. And they have like only three LAN addresses. So it's three IP addresses. And they have all the images hosted somewhere. And someone made a mistake, like developers are making mistakes. And it was actually a buggy code that got deployed with Kubernetes. So what's happening? what's happened is that it's got deployed. So it's trying to push the it's trying to pull the image. The code is not compiling correctly. So Kubernetes is noticing that something is not correct. It's killing it. But then it's actually raising a new one because this is what Kubernetes is doing. But do it like 1,000 times, 10,000 times, 100,000 times. This is what Kubernetes is doing. And doing it from three IP addresses to the same place. And if they, their vendor thought that they are getting a DDoS attack. So they blocked this. <laughs> and this is actually... Something very similar happened to me last week. Yeah. Yeah. So it probably wasn't really... thousands of times, but it was enough. Yeah. So I think it's a really good example of a misconfiguration that is actually passing validation because it will pass a schema validation, but it's actually a policy that you want to make sure that you're not always pulling the latest image because then you can DDoS something by accident. So this is something that will be checked, but it's a Kubernetes... It's Kubernetes valid but it's not policy valid yeah i think uh i need to have an alert in that validator now instead of having a pull policy of always just have on whichever one it is not present or something yeah i really need that <laughs> can we put that in there please uh, exactly right into that that, that reminds okay. me i remember reading a few weeks ago about a kubernetes 
manifest linter that would look for things like that. It would look for pull policies. It would look for, do you have resource requests that are insane? Are you asking for 6,000 CPUs, something like that? This, this tool doesn't do any of that, I, I, I don't think, right? But do you use one and can you recommend one that, that does similar stuff? So this is exactly what the tree is doing. It's also doing, doing those validations. Yeah, again, we are not with heuristics in some cases, right? If, yeah, so you can also create like custom rules. You can set, uh, you can say like, for example, that I want to make sure that there is a liveness prop and the value of yeah. the like. I want to make sure that the entry point is always a slash else, for example, something like that. Awesome. Or you can make sure there's a CPU limit and it's always set to something like that. Actually, you can do a lot of uh, cool stuff. You can say like for staging, I want to make sure that the CPU limit is three, but for production, the CPU limit can be six. So we can also mix them up and you can say, I want to run this specific policy for this environment. Again, it's not something new. There are other tools that are doing that. I, not, I don't think that we created something that is unique. I think what is unique about our approach is that we're doing it simple. We're doing it in a nice way. We're doing it in, in a more integrated way inside your workflow. So we don't need to do the heavy lifting by yourself. You don't need to. So with this example that you gave, you would still need to have something that is also doing Kubernetes schema validation. So we need to integrate another tool like QBval or QConform. And you also need to do a YAML validation. So that's another YAML and linter. And you also need to configure it to connect to your Helm as a plugin or whatever. So you also need to build that. So you have this and this and this and this and this. It's all need to be glued together. And you have a big headache again. So this is the approach that we are trying to take. Like we're trying to take it all off of your hands. You don't need to build all those integrations. You don't need to glue them. Again, we're not doing something new. You can also do it. You can always do it with JQ. You can also gluing by, you can also do it by yourself, but we will do it in an easy way for you. So you prefer to use the tree and over building it by yourself. Again, if you have like free time over the weekend, you want to build it, go and build it. It's fun. Yeah, fun, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Install Kubernetes. It'll be fun, they said. Exactly. (laughs) I'm interested in asking a question that's completely unrelated to this. In your introduction, you said that you're a a leader or founder or something of GitHub Users Group, the largest in the world. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you do? I mean, I'm part of the Go Users Group, or we don't call ourselves a Users Group. We call ourselves a Meetup Group. It's, that's the new the new version of Users Group, right? Here in Amsterdam. And we just get around and get together and talk about Go stuff. Uh, t- tell me what you do at a GitHub Users Group. Yeah, so basically, like this article, it came from my own pain. And the pain was that we I wanted to discuss someone about some features that GitHub had. And I tried to look with among my friends, like where would we have like GitHub meetups that I can ask this question? And the answer was nowhere. So I said like, okay, that's cool. Like I love GitHub, I'm using GitHub and I'm sure that a lot of developers love GitHub and using it. So let's do a meetup about GitHub. So this is how it gets started. And it's actually a user group because it's led by the community. I'm not working at GitHub, I'm not working at Microsoft. They're not paying me in any way. I'm just doing it on my own free time. So this is why it's called a user group. And it actually was surprisingly growing by itself because the first meetup was among 120 people that registered. And the last meetup that we did was 800 people registered. So those are the numbers that were... Where do you host all those people? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So so the 800 numbers, it's online. So it's usually it's online. We don't have a big place to host so many people. And also there's like a benchmark that you know that if you have 800 people that are registering 
not all will come. It's only 30% usually. Yeah. So that's fine. But again, it's a lot of beer and a lot of pizza to bring to Amida. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Well, that's great. Congratulations on that. I mean, it's always fun to, to be part of a community like that and to, to get so much enthusiasm about one that you decided to start. I know that just has to feel good or, or maybe overwhelming or both. <laughs> Another fun fact, actually, my co-founder that was hosted on episode number 76, again, sorry about the cross-reference here, um, is actually leading the local AWS community, which is also the biggest one in the world. So it's a little bit of a fight because GitHub got acquired by Microsoft. So I'm like <laughs> on this side, he's oh. leading the AWS side, and we are working in the same company, but we're still good friends and we love each other. Is there a Kubernetes group? Because they're kind of Google-related. That would be a nice little trifecta. <laughs> so they start they started from Google, but right Not now really they're standing by themselves. Yeah, anymore. it's like yeah. part of the CNCF and organization. So it's like Google started it, but I think it was really nice that they say like, okay, we realize that it's something that is bigger than Google, and we want the community to enjoy it. So hey, CNCF, take this wonderful child and please raise it for us. Yeah, well done, Google. That was a kindness for the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is there AWS in Israel? Do you guys have yeah. AWS there, like local? Locally, you mean like uh, the like servers, like physical servers? Yeah, do they have do they have like an office? Do they do they have like a physical presence there? Oh, okay. So you, we have R and D, and in Israel for AWS, and right now they're actually building like three um, data data center centers in Israel. So we're also going to have the computers themselves, like the machines, <laughs> on Israel oh, wow. uh, land. We don't have AWS. So it will be all. It will be holy servers, I guess. Mm-hmm. I missed something you said, Julian. You said you don't have AWS, what? We don't have AWS like locally in the Middle East. So in the GCC, uh, although they might be in Bahrain now, I'm not sure. But within yep. UAE and Doha, we only have Azure, which is a problem for me in getting local clients because I don't want to have to learn a lot of things. Like I'm kind of lazy and AWS is enough, all right? It has a lot of things that I got to keep up with. And that could be another story for another time. But like, yeah, for real, I don't want to move on to another hosting provider, cloud provider. So uh, that's been my public service announcement for the day, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of R&D centers in Israel. We also have App Intel. Like, there are a lot of tech companies that are in this in here. And because we have a lot of people that, a lot of developers, a lot of uh, qualified people to do that. The only thing that we, don't, we still don't have is like the cloud provider themselves, the local machines. But like I said, it's going to be changed. I know that uh, Google is going, not Google, but Azure is going to open and AWS are going to open in Israel. We are using uh, West Virginia at AWS, by the way. Mm-hmm. Everybody's using West Virginia. <laughs> cool. Anything else you want to talk about? No, I think you got it all covered. So just to summarize it all, you should all validate your Kubernetes file. You should all do it as soon as possible. If it's possible to do it locally, do it then. If it's not possible, at least do it in your CI. And I gave some tips about how to do it. You can do it with the different tools that we mentioned. You can do it with the tree, but you can also do it with other open source tools. You can do it with native tools with like kubectl. You can do it, but you, then you need to put a connection to your cluster. And if someone have any questions regarding that, if someone have any feedback <laughs> regarding this article, please contact me. I think that you will also leave my information on this and we're going to host this. So we have all my information and feel free, like I'm super reachable. My email address is open and you can find me on now a GitHub project if you want to ping me, whatever you choose. That's it. Right on. Yep. We will put your contact info in the show notes. And then the last thing for us to do here are our picks for the show. 
Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. Jonathan, you're excited. Do you want to go first? Sure, of course. Bring it on. I'm I'm reading or actually listening to an audiobook that I think is amazing. I usually read boring stuff like O'Reilly books about Kubernetes and, and Helm charts and stuff like that. But I decided to branch out a little bit and I'm reading this Sid Meier's memoir, which is still nerdy because he's a nerd, but it's so fun. And he talks about game design and how he invented these games that he made. For for those who aren't familiar, everybody's familiar, right? But if you're not He's the creator of games like Civilization and Pirates and a bunch of other really popular games, early flight simulators. It's a great book. I, I don't know. I, I, and it's he reads the, the audiobook. He reads himself. So I feel like I'm having a fireplace conversation with Sid Meier when I read this. Book. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah, I played Civilization from way back in the day, like what was Microsoft the first DOS version days. Yeah. First version, it was on Microsoft DOS. I, I think it, it was either version one. It might have been two. I want to say it was version one. I think I started with two and I I played like the 16 different expansions for version two. And then I think I played every version since. Such a great game. Civilization is good. It's safe. I mean, probably more my husband's sanity when I was on bed rest with my oldest because I had something to like obsess over besides (laughs) just kind of bossing him around. So that's my civilization story. Jillian, you've got a pick for us. I do. So I've been on a quest to go and clean up a lot of my Terraform recipes and release them publicly out into the wild. And I found a really good template for doing that from this group called Cloud Posse. And it's, I think it's spelled pretty much like it sounds. They have a really nice like Terraform GitHub template, you know, like the how you can actually create templates straight from GitHub repositories now. Like you press the button and it creates you a new repo with the file structure and all that kind of thing. And I really like it. They also have this really nice make file that just does like everything. Like there's so much stuff in that make file. It's amazing. So yeah, I've been cleaning up a lot of my Terraform recipes for that and using like using that template as the base. And I think it's it's just a really nice Terraform template. Go check it out. Right on. That's awesome. Yeah, make files. Make files and readme, I think might be two of the hardest problems in software engineering. I still haven't given up. It's really, it's becoming like a cultural age gap kind of problem for me when I talk to new developers. I'm like, it's all in the make file. It's like, it's there, right? And they're like, what's a make file? Especially <laughs> if they've been using like Node and they're used to the package.json. And then I'm like, what's a make file? Like, sit down. We need to talk about this. <laughs> sit down in that chair. We're going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That is it. You are. Have you got a pick for us? I didn't know that I need to choose one. Sorry. I didn't, no, I didn't make my own walk. That's quite all right. I've got one. And it, it's funny because I've heard about this for quite a while. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. It's fine. And it's a screen protector for my iPad, but it's from Paperlike. And it's, as you might have guessed, it's very Paperlike. Because one of the things with using my I, my iPad and the Apple Pencil is it felt really slippery. Plus, I'm left-handed, you know, so I have this thing where I wrap my arm around 360 degrees in order to be able to write anything and then curl up in the fetal position. 
but it was really hard to write on my iPad, but I wanted to do it. And um, so I finally broke down and bought this screen protector called Paperlike. And I put it on and felt it with my fingers. And I was like, yeah, whatever. But then I actually started using it with the Apple Pencil. I was like, holy cow, this is really like writing on a piece of paper. So that's my pick for today is if you have an iPad and the Apple Pencil, but you are struggling to use it because it feels like it just slides all over the place. The paper-like screen protector has solved that problem for me. Is it iPad specific or will it work on any tablet that you use with a stylus? That's a great question. I don't know. I only looked for the iPad version. I would imagine that they've got it for pretty much any tablet. Yeah, because it's just, I mean, it's just, a, it looks just like a screen protector, you know, that you'd buy for your phone or, or any tablet. There's nothing significant about it, but the texture of it feels like paper. So props to their marketing team for naming the product as well. <laughs> All right. I think that's it. We've got a wrap. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yar, thank you for joining us. This was a great chat. And uh, Jonathan, Jillian, welcome. Happy to have you guys here. And uh, we'll see you all next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.